I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. My exorcism was the first time I encountered that kind of idea. And two guys got out of a car and one of them punched me in the eye. Passes it off as a roam and gets it published. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. The illustrator and cartoonist Maurice Velikoop lives and works on Toronto Island. It's a chain of small islands in Lake Ontario, just off the shores of downtown Toronto. Maurice is part of a community of 600 people who live there year-round, and many, like him, are artists. For the past three decades, Maurice has been drawing for publications like the New York Times Magazine, GQ, Rolling Stone, as well as corporate clients like Air Canada and Abercrombie & Fitch. And now he's turned his pen to his own life and created a graphic memoir. It's called I'm So Glad We Had This Time Together. It's a touching and I would say effervescent portrait of growing up gay in a strict Christian family and finding yourself through art. Maurice made the ferry trip to the city to talk with me in the studio, and he opens the program in just a few minutes. In a half an hour, we'll go to Stratford, Ontario to catch up with book whiz Stephen Beattie. He's the creator of That Shakespearean Rag, a very lively and thorough book blog. And today, Stephen recommends three books where con artists take center stage. And to close, our contributor Ryan B. Patrick will talk with Tanya de Rosario about her book of personal essays called Dinner on Monster Island. It's a blend of history, horror, and pop culture. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. It's the 70s in suburban Toronto, and Maurice Velikoop is the youngest of four children in a Dutch immigrant family. While the rest of his family reads, Maurice watches TV. Lots of it. He loves Disney, Cher, and Carol Burnett. He likes to help out in his mom's beauty salon and play with Barbies. And to quote the inside flap of his new memoir, I'm so glad we had this time together, Maurice is really, really gay. And that's a problem because his parents are devoted members of the Christian Reformed Church, a strict Calvinist sect where homosexuality is a sin. As Maurice's story unfolds in his vividly drawn memoir, we see how faith, family, fraught sexuality, and a deep love of art are the forces that shaped the course of Maurice's coming of age. Maurice Velikoop joins me now in the Toronto studio. Hello, Maurice. Welcome to the next chapter. Hello, Ali. It's so nice to be here and meet you. Very nice to meet you too, Maurice. In the opening pages of your book, we see three or four-year-old Maurice on a special day with his beloved mom. And you write that you and her were a perfect team. Can you tell us about that day and that childhood relationship? Mm-hmm. So I'm the youngest of four children. And on this day that we're talking about, it's Remembrance Day in around 1968 or 69. And um, my mother has taken me downtown from uh, the suburbs of Toronto. 
and it's a very magical time for us because I get to be downtown and see all the buildings that are that have like interesting ornate details and there's all kinds of sights and sounds that are absolutely missing in the suburbs mm. and I'm with her my favorite person in the world and so it's remembrance day and as we're heading downtown my mom's explaining to me what remembrance day is and how at 11 o'clock the entire world is going to come to a standstill for a minute's silence and I don't believe her. Mm. I'm like, you've got to be kidding. That's not going to happen. And lo and behold, we get to Simpsons, uh, now the Hudson's Bay store at uh, Queen and Young. And we're on the escalator and the escalator stops for a minute. And I'm like, what is going on here? And my mom says, it's Remembrance Day. We're going to pause now and remember what happened here in Canada and and all the people who lost their lives. And and I realized that she knows everything hmm. at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and then we meet your dad. And in some frames, the color changes in these interesting ways, right? He, he appears in cooler colors, blue, sometimes black. And then, of course, he turns really, really red as he starts to lose his temper. What was his role in your family? Uh, he was what they used to call a good provider. <laughs> and that's, he was, he worked really hard as a caretaker in the Toronto District um, School Board. And so, yeah, he was the breadwinner. My mom worked really hard too as, as a hairdresser. And yeah, he was, I think, a very conflicted, tormented person mm. who, not, I'm not sure how comfortable he was being a father, really, but it was that time, the 1950s and 60s, when people conformed and they did what was expected of them. And so my parents married and started having children when possibly he may not have really wanted mm. them. You mentioned he's a hard worker. He also yes. has what we would call today a side hustle, doing more cleaning yes. after his day of cleaning um, in his full-time job. He comes to clean at your school. Yes. So um, we were sent to something called Timothy Christian School, which was run by the Christian Reformed Church that we belong to. And it was a school um, for Christian Reformed kids who happened to uniformly be all Dutch immigrant children. So I grew up in this Christian Dutch bubble kind of separate from the world in a way. Although I will say, I mean, you're painting this very Dutch picture, but but we should also mention that your parents, they loved art. Uh, your dad was a fan of the Dutch masters. Your mom enjoyed fashion. And there's a day that you describe where you and your dad go on this life-changing adventure. Tell me, where did you go? Yes. So my dad uh, one day decided to take only me, not any of my siblings, just me, to see a re-release of uh, Walt Disney's film from the 40s, Fantasia. Uh, why he did this, I have no idea. But I was just smitten and transformed by that experience. Everything that I have ever loved <laughs> is in that movie. Classical music, fantasy, Greek mythology, fairies, hunky devils. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's all there. And it was a, yes, it was a transformative moment that I, that I cherished. And, um, and it 
fed me for years. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that your life's work was born out of that moment. Totally, as a child. totally. Yeah. Alongside Disney, you had a lot of other loves and obsessions throughout your childhood. You had a family of readers, but at least until a certain point, you were baffled by why read when there is television uh, here. What did you like to watch? What were you passionate about on TV? Oh, I would watch anything. I'd watch anything. I'd watch game shows. I'd watch variety shows. Uh, I watched a movie a day in secret <laughs> from from my my mother, who was very um, concerned about the amount of viewing that I was doing. And I would watch an entire movie after school every, pretty much every day for years, somehow without her not without her her knowledge. The panels that you draw in this part of the book really illustrate, I see like something that looks like Family Feud, I see something that looks like Hollywood Squares type yes. of thing, right? And uh, it's just, it, it really, you, you, you cut a swath across all entertainment. It really <laughs> does show that you like everything. But there's another powerful force in your life, and that is, as you mentioned, Christian Reformed Church. Tell me how big a part, a role did that play, not just for your parents, but for the entire family? Yes. So it was intense. Um, we went to church twice on Sundays. We went to Christian school um, where we got, you know, a good education, I think, but heavily skewed towards Bible study. We went to a catechism class one night per week um, where we learned more doctrine and, and Bible there was something called the Calvinist Cadet Corps for young Christian boys, and it was kind of like Boy Scouts, but Christian. And Christian Reformed girls were Calvinettes. <laughs> John Calvin was big in, mm. um, in yeah, the, no, of course. The, the particular Protestant faith. Um, your mom gives you a book called God's Temple, A Christian Guide to Growing Up. How does that book affect your growing sense of sexuality? Yeah, so... In that book, I discovered the Christian Reformed Church's uh, views on homosexuality. And they are, as they remain today, that the homosexual in the Christian Reformed Church must remain celibate in order to win God's grace. And if he, um, I'm going to use the delightful word that they use, if he was to practice his <laughs> right. his homosexuality, that would lead to damnation. All bets are off. Yeah. yeah. So the only choice is celibacy and acceptance or damnation and rejection by the community of the church. You're the, allowed to be a, a homosexual in name only, yeah. but not in action. Yeah. Right. As you um, leave adolescence, we see these uh, lovelorn years, bad dates, unrequited love. Uh, in short, lots of sexual uncertainty. What was it like to go back and, and examine that period and write and draw about that period? Oh, it was painful. There, there was a lot of um, unresolved guilt and shame from childhood. And the exact moment that I came out and started going to bars was when AIDS hit the world. And so there was a lot of... Um, just naked fear running amongst the community. And for me, it was terrifying too. So on top of the guilt and the shame, and there was that. And then there was also this, this very narrow gay culture at the time in the 80s. 
most gay men wore a mustache and an a polo shirt, and that was the uniform, right? Tom Selleck, Magnum P.I., yeah, perhaps. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody went to the gym, too. So if you were not a gym bunny, you just didn't get attention. Mm. And I was this skinny little twink um, before, avant la lettre, before twinks were a thing. So I could, you know, never, I couldn't really connect with people of that community too. And what's interesting also is during this time of sexual in, un- uncertainty, opposite that, you're having incredible career success. Yes. Right? You, you, in, in one wonderful section of this book, you write about uh, you, you, the drawings are, are, are the ones that you did for Vogue at Paris Fashion Week. And this was back in the supermodel era. What was that like for you? Yeah, that was incredible. I mean, in the early 90s, graphic novels and comics were starting to gain a lot of momentum and popularity. And my main career was as an illustrator for um, magazines mostly and some advertising. So that was my main career. But I drew comics on the side. And I started getting commissions for comics uh, for magazines like Esquire and uh, Details magazine. And this led to a call from Vogue to see if I wanted to attend Couture Week in 1994 and write a four-page comic on the experience. And it was, it was like fashion reporting was what I was asked to do. So it was, yeah, it was very unique. And the, yeah, the experience of being in Paris for that time was bonkers. <laughs> mm. Just to switch gears from something that was so uh, uplifting mm-hmm. and inspiring, I wanted to talk also about this uh, other theme in the book, which is that you were, you know, you were suggesting this earlier, your size and, and your uncertainty led you to also be, you know, sort of no stranger to bullying and attacks. And at one point, you're the the, the victim of a, a pretty terrifying uh, knife attack. And in one of the most heart-rending scenes in the book, you call your father for some mm. support. What happens there? Yeah. Well, so this is, there were two attacks. Um, so the first attack was in the sort of mid-80s. And I was walking um, down the street at night. And two guys got out of a car, and one of them punched me in the eye, and I uh, lost consciousness. And so when I got up, they were gone, and I ran to um, my brother's house. I was cat-sitting for him at the time. And my eye was all swollen. I was freaked out. I was um, crazy with anxiety and, and fear and, like, what just happened to me? And it was like maybe 1 a.m. by this point. I decided to call my dad and finally roused him out of a deep sleep after like the phone ringing for like 20 times Mm. and told him what happened. And I expected him to rush to be by my side. And as we're having this conversation, I started to realize that, you know, he asked me, can you see out of the eye? And I said, yes. And his advice was to put some ice on it, and uh, he would see me the next day. And I realized with a sinking heart that he was not going to be there for me. And what I had always kind of suspected, that he couldn't really be there for me in a meaningful way, was at that point confirmed. Confirmed, Yeah, yeah. And then after the knife attack, 
the knife attack happened many years yeah. later. My reaction to the the fist in the eye was like rage, rage at my father, rage at the world. Uh, I've behaved like very badly to people who were trying to help me. I was like, I don't need your help. Hmm. But after the knife attack, the reaction was like a dead reaction, and I just was like a sleepwalker, hmm. and I just told everybody that I was fine, that it was over and done with. And I just tried to put it out of my mind. And I sank into a very, very severe depression mm. after that. I had suffered from periods of depression before, but that one was like, yeah, really bad, new, as we see in the book. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's a yeah. new level of numb yeah. that we don't see. Yeah. Um, one of the themes in the memoir is also that there's lots of trial and error in finding love, and the <laughs> same goes for finding the right therapist, which you yes. eventually do. Tell us what difference she made in your life. Well, you know, she is an incredible person. Uh, she made a huge difference, a uh, huge difference in my life um, because she was the right person for me after a, a kind of a brutal search to find someone. It's like It's kind of like finding a romantic partner. The chemistry has to be there, right? Mm -hmm. And the moment I walked into her office, she had this mischievous smile. And she was very pragmatic, very wise, and very funny. She, we joked a lot. And we also cried a lot together. And she encouraged me to start taking some risks in life um, in terms of dating and um, making myself open to meeting guys and stuff. Mm. And uh, yeah, I'm forever grateful. I'm so glad we had this time together. The title of the book is from the Carol Burnett show. It was her sign off song. But the way the book is organized mirrors the story of Sleeping Beauty. Why didn't you choose that story? Sleeping Beauty, yes. Um, so the one of the first lines in the book is about me having periods of sadness as a young child. And we listened to a lot of classical music in our house. And the the waltz from Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty got, like, stuck in my head. And when I was trying to go to sleep at night, I would hum the waltz from Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty over and over again and as a kind of, like, a self-soothing um, um, exercise. Mm. And eventually I would fall asleep. So, again, Sleeping Beauty is there right from the beginning. And it keeps popping up in different um, guises throughout the, the the book. So it has a lot of a lot of meanings. Um, I read one of these scholarly books that that looks at fairy tale and tries to take them apart. And one of the interpretations of the story is that it expresses an anxiety on the part of parents about their children or their child reaching puberty. So in the story, the princess who becomes the Sleeping Beauty, she pricks her finger on a spindle of a spinning wheel and bleeds. And some people see that as a metaphor for menstruation, that this girl has come of age, right? And disaster follows. And I think that that kind of mirrors my story in a way, not that I ever menstruated or anything, but that when I hit puberty, that's when 
everything started to fall apart between me and my parents. My mother particularly couldn't accept my sexuality. And she had a hard time when all four of us reached puberty and started being sexual. So there's that connection to it, too. Mm. It, it permeates everything. And the title? The Carol Burnett influence? Yes. Right. So the Carol Burnett section represents the first kind of conflict that I had with my mother that kind of broke the serenity and the peacefulness of our of our relationship. So my parents had very, very strict bedtimes in our house. And there was a point where I was being sent to bed halfway through the Carol Burnett show. I lived for that program. It was like my whole life. And this senseless, like, strictness that would make them not stay up for just one half hour. And the irony, of course, was that I would lie in bed, like, furious for hours, mm -hmm. like, just, like, raging against this injustice. I mean, so that's that's what it represents. And then the song um, title, I'm So Glad We Had This Time Together, can be interpreted in so many ways. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds nice, but it also can be very snarky and sarcastic and <laughs> ironical, too. So... I think it could be read in all of those ways. Before we started rolling the mics, just before we sat down, you told me this was 10 years in the making. Thank you for the hard work you put into this. It was an absolute pleasure to read. Oh, I'm very touched. Thank you. Maurice Velikoop is the author of the graphic novel, I'm So Glad We Had This Time Together. <laughs> Ever since her first award-winning, best-selling novel, Kit's Law, the joys, pain, and people in Donna Morrissey's life have inspired her fiction. The last time Donna was here at the next chapter, she talked about Pluck, a memoir of a Newfoundland childhood and the raucous, terrible, amazing journey to becoming a novelist. That was the entire title. Donna grew up in a tiny port of 12 houses in northwest Newfoundland, and she says that experience continues to feed her writing. Donna's latest novel, her seventh, is based on an actual event known as the Newfoundland Sealing Disaster, where 132 sealers were stranded on ice flows. It's called Rage the Night. Here's Donna Morrissey answering the next chapter's version of the Proust Questionnaire. Name your favorite writers. Um, George Eliot, Joseph Conrad, Cormac McCarthy and 5,000 others. Tell me about your favorite character in fiction. One of my favorite characters in fiction is George Eliot's Dorothea, because she was such a strong, powerful woman back in those days, and she was determined, and she had a vision, and she tried to follow through with it. I'm also equally in love with um, Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, because he was such a powerful uh, character with so many ills and flaws, and uh, was able to um, work through most of those things and, and achieve in the end, even though he died. If you could change something about yourself, what would it be? My fear of fear. What phrase do you most overuse? And then, just like that. What do you value most in your friends? Consciousness and kindness. On what occasions do you lie? When I'm projecting onto others, which is basically all the time. What is your greatest regret? My drug days. 
Who is your favorite painter? My daughter, Bridget. What is your favorite occupation? Writing, writing, and writing. What is your favorite journey? Traveling back home, visiting the family, the old homestead, so to speak, childhood places. What is your principal defect? Uh, foresight. Where would you like to live? Hawaii, right next to the snorkeling grounds. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Being in a large house with many, many rooms filled with family and one huge private room just for me, and it's the library. What is your greatest fear? Tarantulas. Who are your favorite characters in history? History? Job, I guess, because he was so challenged and uh, persevered. Who are your favorite heroes in real life? My best friend, Michael Chadwick. All of my friends, because they have kindness and understanding and love, and they read the same books as me. What do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? Looking into my husband's eyes during his last days, looking into my mom's during her last days. So many moments. What is your greatest extravagance? Clothing, clothing, more clothing, winners, Frenchies. Salvation Army, clothing, clothing. What is your greatest achievement? I could say my children, but, you know, aside from that, I guess my novels. That was Donna Morrissey answering the Proust questionnaire. Her latest novel is Rage the Night. Hi, I'm Ashley Tate, the author of 27 Minutes, and a book I love to reread is The Push by Ashley Audrain. The Push is a very dark, very tense story of a mother with a challenging child. The reason why I love it is that no one writes about the messy, complicated inner workings of women quite like Ashley Audrain. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Gary Barwin, the author of Imagining Imagining, and you're listening to the next chapter on CBC Radio 1. Stephen Beattie spent a number of years as the review editor of Quill and Choir magazine, and he now writes and edits his own book blog called That Shakespearean Rag. I think it's fair to say he lives and breathes books, and he's someone who's always on the lookout for an original voice and a fresh use of language. And it's only fitting that the creator of a blog called That Shakespearean Rag lives in Stratford, Ontario. And that's where Stephen joins me from today to recommend three books on con artists. Hey, Stephen, welcome to the next chapter. Hey, Ali, thanks so much for having me on. All right, so before we get to the scammers and con artists in the books that you want to talk about today, tell us how much Shakespeare makes its way into that Shakespearean rag. <laughs> uh, beside the title of the blog, not a lot, but okay. I take every opportunity that I can to shoehorn in a reference to Shakespeare, whether it's a line from one of his plays or uh, just a reference to him as a person. If I were to do that, I would be drummed out of the, the city pretty quick. Okay, yeah. Uh, I have to say, this subject is is interesting. No one likes to be conned, but we all seem to enjoy reading about this. I'm not sure if we're more easily duped than in the past, or if the internet has given con artists and scammers a rich new playground, but it does seem like we're in the age of grift. What's your sense of that? Well, I mean, it definitely has done that, and uh, the reach of the internet, I think, has allowed grifters and con artists to um, find new audiences. Uh, but Connors have always been with us and, you know, the, the technology has changed, but I think the craft of the grift has not changed. The personalities that they target have not changed. We may know more about them now. Like if you look back to, you know, the hard-boiled writers of the, the 40s and 50s, like Jim Thompson with the grifters, um, and certainly the, the turn of the century, and one of the books we're going to be talking about here takes place in America in, in the early years of the 20th century. Um, that was a golden age for grifters and con artists in Charlotte. And so I'm not sure that there there are more grifters around right now. I'm not sure that we're more susceptible to them. We probably hear about them more often. And as you say, with the internet, we get to know some of their tricks a little bit more than we could have maybe, you know, 50, 100 years ago. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's look at the books that you want to talk about today. What's the first one on the list? So the first book that I've chosen uh, today is a book for a novel from last year, a Canadian writer named Zoe Whittle. Her novel is called The Fake. And I thought this was one of the most entertaining books that I had read last year. It centers on a woman named Tammy, who is a consummate grifter, a consummate con artist. She lies about having had cancer um, and she preys upon vulnerable people the the two people that she preys upon insistently in this book are uh, a woman named shelby who has just lost her wife uh, to a brain aneurysm it was a very sudden death and she's still grieving and uh, the other one is gibson who has just gone through a very painful divorce um, she targets these people because they are so vulnerable because she knows that she can prey on their weaknesses and their susceptibilities she actually meets shelby at a grief counseling session for for people who have lost loved ones and um, takes her for coffee afterwards. And uh, they have this heart to heart where she sort of worms her way into Shelby's affections and gains her trust and empathy. She's incredibly intelligent and very good at what she does. She's also an outright liar and, and a number of characters in the book go so far as to call her a psychopath. Hmm. 
It sounds like in this book, one of the cons that the woman in the novel uses is to make her marks feel like they really, really know her on a deep level. Yes. Why does that hold such appeal? Because I think that the one way con artists work is to sort of get under your skin by making you trust them, by making you empathize with them. And in order to do that, they use all sorts of psychological tricks. Um, it helps that in, in the case of the fake, Cammy is preying on two people who are already psychologically wounded, psychologically vulnerable. Um, and so they're sort of malleable. She can see what pressure points to push. Hmm. All right. So I'm, I'm getting some enthusiasm from you as I read between the, the, the vibe I'm hearing, but you would definitely recommend this as a book? I think it's a terrific book. I think it's very entertaining. Um, Zoe has spent a lot of time uh, in the interim between writing novels working for television. She's um, mm -hmm. worked on scripts for Schitt's Creek and um, Degrassi, The Next Generation, The Baroness von Sketch Show. And I think that experience has given her a real feel for pace, for plot, for dialogue. And it really comes through in this book. It's, it's a hugely entertaining piece of work. Okay. What is the next book on the list? Uh, the next book on the list is fascinating for me. It's a, uh, coming from a background in publishing. It's a book called Yellow Face, which is also a uh, 2023 publication. It's by a uh, an American-Korean writer named R.F. Kwong, who is probably best known for writing fantasy novels. But this is a book about a white uh, aspiring writer. She's published one novel, which tanked. She has a friend who is Asian who published one novel, which was very well received, very successful. The friend dies in the first chapter. This is not a spoiler. The friend dies in the first chapter by choking to death on a pancake, which I think is a, a you know morbidly funny scene. Um, and what the, the writer does, the white writer whose name is June Hayward, uh, she takes the unpublished novel of her dead friend, passes it off as her own, and gets it published. And becomes the toast of New York City and the New York publishing world because of it. Mm -hmm. Literary theft. There have, been, there have been quite a few novels recently about literary theft, about people stealing other people's identities, um, people stealing other people's stories. And in particular, where Yellowface is concerned, I think this is an interesting take on the subject, because in addition to the literary theft, it also takes up uh, appropriation of voice, cultural appropriation, who is able to tell what stories. Um, the novel that that um, June appropriates is actually about the Chinese experience in World War I. So once it's published with her as a, as a white author, she gets all sorts of pushback on Twitter, for example, sure. talking about how she's, you know, she's getting facts wrong. She's not treating her subjects with the great, with the respect that they deserve and so on and so forth. There are levels of irony here, of course, because it was her Asian friend who actually penned the novel in the first place. And when she publishes it uh, as a result of, of intercession from her publisher, June actually changes her name to Juniper Song. Song is her middle name, which was given to her by her hippie mother. But they feel that this would sort of sound more ethnic to uh, the reading public. So there, again, there are layers of irony here. And, you know, you start to question, like, who's conning who? Obviously, June is conning everybody because she's the one who's appropriated this novel. But to what extent are the publishers complicit in this deception by trying to do whatever they can to convince people that June may be of a different cultural background, a different heritage? Um, there are all sorts of levels at work here, which I think is just fascinating. So tell me, what does Yellowface have to say about cultural appropriation? Basically, it seems to me um, Huang is is sort of taking the entire idea of how we approach 
cultural appropriation and the right to tell stories and dismantling it and examining it from various perspectives. I think it's a, it's a fascinating novel because it really critiques these issues from a whole set of different perspectives and a whole set of different levels, which lends the entire novel an ironic overtone. One thing I'm not picking up on, I know the first author you spoke about, Zoe Whittle, quite funny. Is Yellowface yes. funny? Yellowface is very funny. And I think it's even funnier if you have a background in publishing, if you are familiar with the way the discourse works and the extent to which publishers will go to try to market their books. One of the interesting things about this, too, from a publishing perspective, is the, the insight that it gives you into how bestsellers are almost predetermined before they're even published. Mm in terms of the way publishers market books, in terms of the advertising push that they put behind them. All of that stuff, if you have a background in publishing, will be readily recognizable. But I think for, for any reader, any general reader, uh, will find the book entertaining. And yes, I think in places it is, as I said earlier, morbidly funny. I think that the humor in it is very barbed and very pointed, but it's humorous nonetheless. It's also critiquing the lack of diversity behind the scenes in publishing in North America, which I still think is a pressing problem. Very interesting. Uh, there's one more book about a con or a scam on your list today. What is that? This one is a little older. It's a 2008 publication from America called Charlatan uh, by a guy named Pope Brock. The subtitle is America's Most Dangerous Huckster, The Man Who Pursued Him and the Age of Flim Flam. So the titular character in this book is a doctor, and I use that word very loosely in, in sort of scare quotes, named John R. Brinkley, who back in the early 20th century, and when we're talking the 1920s and early 1930s, had this idea to treat male erectile dysfunction by taking the gonads of a goat and transplanting them into a man's scrotum sewing up the uh, the uh, nerves and the and the um, glands and the theory was that this would help rejuvenate uh, middle-aged or aging male give him back his potency it was absolutely absurd like it was it was a completely absurd idea but he was it was hugely successful and men and their dissatisfied wives started to patronize him but he got patients from across the country only later to realize that this was a complete scam and they were giving him $750 of their money, which at that time was a huge amount, mm -hmm. for a completely untested, completely ineffective treatment. He was hounded by a guy named Morris Fishbein, who at the time was the uh, editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association, who knew that he was a charlatan but couldn't prove it, and spent most of his career trying to take this guy down. What's so interesting to me about Brinkley is how closely he mirrors the kinds of charlatans that we see in public life today. And I'm thinking particularly of the 45th president of the United States. Yeah. Both of them share qualities in common. Both of them are absolute blowhards. Both of them are absolutely convinced of the rightness of what they're doing and the wrongness of anybody who tries to challenge them on that. Neither of them is willing to back down when they're challenged or when they're when when people suggest they're doing things that are inappropriate or flat out wrong or they're lying, they will double down on those lies. It's an amazing comparison to look at Brinkley in the 20s and 30s and realize that the kinds of tactics that he used, the kinds of things that he was doing, the ways that he got people on his side are exactly the same as the kinds of things we're seeing today in the news. So on that note, part of this suggests that 
humans are are pretty vulnerable to quick fixes. We're still, everybody's looking for, you know, that one magic pill and all this kind of stuff. What does that have to say about human nature and our our seeming eagerness to sign on to these kind of things? That it's it's as true as it was then as it is now 100 years later. Absolutely. And I mean, I think you're absolutely right when you talk about the desire for quick fixes. That's always been the case. Um, People are just, you know, looking for, and in some cases, they're really suffering. Like a lot of the people that Brinkley, and again, I'm using scare quotes, treated, you know, were really suffering. He moved on from um, the the goat gland scam to, um, he had a radio program that he broadcasted in Mexico because he wasn't allowed a license in, in the States. And on that program, he had something called the medical question box, where you could send medical questions that you have, kind of like tapping them into typing them into Google. You could send medical questions that you have, and he would give you the response that, well, okay, I think that what you're talking about is this. And for that, we have this tincture that you can buy for, you know, $50 or whatever it is. And they would send you the tincture, which again, his, his medicines were like colored water and things yeah. like that. They were absolutely, again, absolutely ineffective. But this kind of thing, this idea that, those cures would solve all of your problems. It's one of the reasons that, you know, a, a scammer like Alex Jones in the States is able to sell his medical supplements sure. on Infowars um, because, you know, people people will look at that and they'll say, oh, well, you know, I take these, um, whether they're steroids or whatever they are, they'll bulk me up, they'll make my memory better, they'll, you know, um, make me feel younger, they'll make me look younger. Um, and And a lot of it is just snake oil. Final question to you, Stephen. Has reading about all these cons made you think twice about trusting other human beings? <laughs> I was I don't think I would consider myself a hugely trustworthy person to begin with. So I'm not sure that these this has changed my perspective. Um, I do know that con artists are out there. I you know, I, I don't think you need to be any more concerned about this than you ever did. But just be aware that, that, you know, these folks are out there and don't have your best interests at heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know what it says about me, but I find all three of these books very enticing. So thanks so much for all of this, Stephen. (laughs) Thank you. I really appreciate it. Stephen Beattie is a book critic and reviewer and the creator of the book blog, That Shakespearean Rag. And you can find the books he recommended today at cbc.ca slash the next chapter. I'm about to be joined by my colleague and Next Chapter contributor, Ryan B. Patrick. Now, I know Ryan to be a wide-ranging reader, and today he's bringing us an interview with Tanya De Rosario, who sounds like somebody whose writing is an interesting mashup of themes and interests. Hello, Ryan. Hey, how's it going, Ali? You spoke with her about her book of essays called Dinner on Monster Island. Mm -hmm. That sounds very interesting. What kinds of things does she write about in this book? Yeah, so Tanya is uh, originally from Singapore. So now she's based in Vancouver. She's an author, a visual artist. This is a really cool collection of essays. It's called Dinner on Monster Island. And it contextualizes her lived experiences through the lens of pop culture. So uh, how do you feel about horror movies, Ali? I'm into them. Cool. So this essay collection, it's all about uh, horror movies. It's about pop culture. And it kind of contextualizes that with all her lived experiences. So for example, in one essay, she talks about the horror film, The Exorcist, and how that movie made her feel. And she kind of explores that film and she explores films and contextualizes it with her own life in terms of uh, looking at ideas around faith, around gender dynamics, around the power of mother-daughter relationships. So what I found really cool about this collection, Ali, it uses elements of her lived experience. It uses history, uses pop culture, horror films, real world events, and all 
all to explore the power and the nature of monsters and what it means to be different and what it means to be the quote-unquote the other. Very nice. I have very fond memories of being a young kid with other young friends and just a quilt over your head, just enough room for one eye to poke <laughs> out and watch a horror film. And, uh, and then you went to bed and somehow you were stronger for it. So I look forward to reading this book. Thank you, Ryan. Here's your interview with Tanya De Rosario, author of this book of essays called Dinner on Monster Island. Tanya D. Rosario joins me now from her home in Vancouver. Hello, Tanya, and welcome to the next chapter. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for having me. So this is an essay collection, Dinner on Monster Island. Maybe we can talk about the title first. Um, I'm familiar with the video game, uh, that kind of, <laughs> <laughs> it's a 90s cult classic. Um, let's let's yeah. talk about that, the title of the book. Um, what's going on here? Um, yeah, so I'm a fan of Zombies Ate My Neighbors. Yes, which is the um, video game that I, I which mentioned. Which is the video <laughs> game that this title comes from. The title is um, the title of one of the levels mm. um, that occurs on like a little self-contained island. And I just kind of have that in my brain, um, in my subconscious, not really on my conscious, <laughs> not really on a conscious level. And I was just thinking about uh, when I was writing this collection, I was just thinking about power, um, how power is used. Um, I was thinking a lot about citizen complicity mm-hmm. in state power. And um, I just remembered something that a friend of mine said, which was that, if you feed, you know, your neighbor to the monster at lunchtime, what happens when he comes back for dinner and there's only you left? Mm. And that kind of, it felt like it summarized a lot of thoughts I had about power and powerlessness and complicity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're going to talk about monsters, but let's take a quick step back. Um, so you're originally from Singapore. And one of the essays in the collection is called Salvation, which is a very harrowing account of how you were treated as a young girl and subjected to a gay exorcism at the age of 12. Can we kind of set the stage here in terms of, um, yeah, what happened here? Sure. Um, So I was 12. I was uh, coming back from school. And my mother met me at the bus stop, which already I kind of, my spidey sense told me (laughs) when I was a 12-year-old that something was happening. Um, And what had happened was two of her friends from our church had shown up at at, um, our apartment and said that God had sent them there. And they had successfully convinced my grandmother to convert from Catholicism to the brand of evangelical Christianity that my my mom was. And it was kind of a shock to me because my grandmother had been Catholic her whole life um, and she was, you know, a really loyal Catholic. And we went upstairs and I was told to, you know, just go do my usual after school things, take a shower, come out. And um, when I emerged... Um, my mother's two friends took great umbrage, for lack of a better word, at the fact that I was so-called dressed like a boy. And I think everyone kind of read uh, lesbian tendencies into mm. that. Mm. And that's how the exorcism started. It was kind of a seven-hour process of what they said was not yelling at me, but yelling at what was inside of me. Um, to try and get them out. And, you know, a lot of 
prayer and casting and um, laying of hands, etc. Yeah, I, I think just how you recount it in the book, it's very traumatizing. Um, maybe we can talk about your relationship with your, your mother at the time. Like, how did she, in your mind, arrive at that idea to put her own daughter through that? That's a really interesting question. I don't think she did. Mm. I think it was circumstance, the circumstance of them coming over, being so-called led by God to our apartment, and that kind of intersecting with concerns she already had about me and um, my sexuality. And I think those two just happened to meet at an unlucky junction. Yeah. It's, I don't think it's something, to my knowledge, I don't think it's something that she planned, but it's definitely something that she let happen. Yeah. How did you process what happened to you at such a young age? Uh, in terms of processing at that young age, I didn't. I think like most children who go through um, bad experiences or traumatic experiences, I kind of normalized it. Hmm. Also, I think my exorcism was the first time I encountered that kind of idea and I mm. normalized it. Yeah. Um, I, I processed it as a young adult, I think when I had a more mature understanding of what had happened. Yeah. So what I enjoyed about this book is that it contextualizes your lived experiences through the lens of pop culture. So you talk about the first time you saw the film, The Exorcist, speaking of exorcisms. Mm. How did you feel watching that movie? I absolutely loved it. Um, I think the first time I watched it, when I was a younger teenager, I didn't really connect with it. Um, the way I do now, you know, I thought of it more in terms of like, oh, these effects are really outdated. Mm. Um, and oh, how much is this scaring me? How much is this not scaring me? I think it took me a while to really get into horror and to rewatch it to really kind of connect with it in terms of what it means to turn someone, you know, into a monster or perceive someone as a monster. Yeah, and you talk about how horror movies served as a lifeline for you growing Absolutely. up in terms of ideas around faith, in terms of who owns our bodies, uh, and your yes. own connection with your mother. Like I like how you talk about movies like Carrie in terms of how that movie mm. made you felt, or even modern movies like The Witch by Robert Eggers. This book uses like elements of history, pop culture, horror, right. and, and elements to kind of explore the nature of monsters and, and what it means to be different. I guess, what does different mean to you? I think people discover their difference when they realize they can't pass through society in the same way other people do. Mm. Um, and this can be any kind of dif difference, right? It, we can be talking about race. We can be talking about sexuality. Um, we can be talking about gender. The ease with which uh, one passes through the world without um, question, without punishment, without difficulty. I think when you move through the world differently, the deeper your knowledge of that difference gets as you get older. Mm. Um, and I think that's expressed in the book is that, you know, the first section which takes place um, in childhood and teenhood, I guess the politics and the social ramifications of that are kind of embedded in the personal voice. And then when you get to the second section, it may be, it's, it's more overtly the other way around, right? We're quite yeah. overtly talking about race and about censorship. Mm. 
And, and in terms yeah. of that structure that you mentioned, the final essay in the collection is called Letter to My Mother. And it reflects on your le- late mother and your connection to her as you're uh, at her apartment going through her things. Um, wh- what was your approach to writing that essay? I had just come to Canada and my mother had died earlier that year and I got my first assignment, you know, in the writing program I was in and it was to write a letter to someone and the instinct to write that letter to her um, was immediate. By the time I got to the end of that essay, I realized I wanted not just to be angry, but to really feel all the feelings that come with grief that is very complicated. Mm. Because, you know, when you lose someone you love, you grieve the loss of that person and the loss of that relationship. But when you grieve the death of someone who had a big role in your life because they harmed you uh, when they were supposed to be taking care of you, you don't necessarily grieve the loss of that person or the relationship. You grieve the relationship that never was. And that comes with a lot of anger and deep disappointment and, you know, maybe even some um, catharsis. You might possibly have no love for this person who died and yet you're wrestling with these big emotions. Mm. That's totally fair in terms of emotion and anger and catharsis, (laughs) uh, Tanya. In terms of this book, Dinner on Monster Island, being out in the world now, what, what does healing look like for you? That's a good question. Um, and I think it also ties into the the weird element of time that comes with publishing because it's a new book to everyone else. But I've been writing it since 2018. Mm. And, you know, writing is very much of a healing process for me. So a lot of the time, if I'm writing about these things, if the essay is already out there, I'm already on my way. Yeah to healing that said i just also want to acknowledge that there's of course no kind of finite point grief and um trauma come up in sometimes weird and unexpected ways Mm. you know just when you think you're fine um and i think healing is a constant process of learning to take care of ourselves especially for those of us who i think weren't properly taken care of Mm. tanya Thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much. That was Tanya De Rosario in conversation with Ryan B. Patrick about her book, Dinner on Monster Island. And that is our show for today. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews. My thanks this week to Laura Antonelli, Emily Carvacio, Olivia Pasquarelli, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, our columnist Tressa Lavasseur returns to review audiobooks. And I'll speak with Sarah Mukhulrana about her debut book, Hope Ablaze. It's the story of a young Muslim girl who defends her poetry and her faith in a novel about the power of words. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to The Next Chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.